So this morning we are going to be looking at another aspect of redemption. And this is the point at which I'm going to need to, to give you a disclaimer, uh, because when we come to something, uh, it's, a, it's a good tendency that we have in us that uh, whenever someone gets a little too close to uh, an uncomfortable uh, statement, we, we start, we start we, you know, I'm making a statement that I'm being a little too bold. And, and th- there might be some statements where, as I uh, set up our topic this morning, you might think I'm being a little too bold. And we talked about that even this morning in Job. Uh, where his friends are saying, ah, you know, you're, you're talking about wanting to go and have a, a, a legal uh, court case with God. We think you're getting a little too bold. We're a little uncomfortable with this. So I, I needed to, to establish a disclaimer because what we're talking about this morning, uh, the other side of redemption, uh, last week we talked about God's role in redemption. And when I say we're talking about our role in redemption, uh, I'm not talking about like, well, God's trying to redeem me, and here's what I need to do to be redeemed. That's not, uh, we, in a sense, we covered both sides of that uh, last week. Uh, but when I say two sides of redemption, I'm talking about my role as a, a, a third party in redemption. And we're going to look at some questions that Jesus asks uh, in one situation that, that identify our role. And this is where you go, what do you mean, our role? I don't save people. Right? God saves people. And so, so you might think that I'm getting a little too uh, uh, bold in, in, my, you know, in identifying our role in other people's uh, redemption. So we obviously understand that God is the one who saves. I want you to think about, just for, an ex- for a moment, an example uh, if, if we saw there's a man overboard in the middle of the ocean, uh, and uh, the man is fortunate, uh, he's, he's lucky, I mean, he could be you know, out there in the middle of nowhere, what are the chances of survival? But he's fortunate, and a, a ship has come along, and uh, someone, not only does the ship come along, but someone happens to see him overboard, so they yell out, and then... Um, they, they spot him, so, so someone, one of the crew members runs down and they throw out this, this, uh, this little uh, life buoy uh, and, and start pulling him back in. Well, we could look at this a lot of ways. We could look at this as though the boat saved him, right? If there was no boat, um, it wouldn't make a difference if someone somewhere knew that he was overboard. There's no salvation for this. this there's no rescue for this man. Uh, if... if if the boat happened to go by, but no one saw him, right, he's, not, he's not getting rescued. Uh, if they throw him a life buoy, but there's no rope attached to it, well, well that just did no good. And if someone throws him this life buoy with a rope, and, uh, and he just decides, no, I'm not going to grab it, well, well, then he's not going to be saved. So, so there's a lot of elements of this rescue. Uh, and so... We can look at that. If we look at the Bible, we can look at a lot of things. And, and people argue about what saves and who saves and how saves and all these things. But really, when you look at the Bible, there's, there's not a one statement about salvation. There's a lot of statements about salvation. For example, the, the Bible says that the Scriptures save you. We know that God saves us. 
We know that grace saves us. We know that faith saves us. The Bible says that confession saves us. The Bible says that we actually save ourselves. Right? And, and, and the Bible says that baptism now saves you. There's all these things that are integral parts of salvation. And, and one of the, 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 closing, the, the closing thought of the book of James is that a man who turns back a sinner from his ways, saves a soul from death. So yes, without being too bold, without going out of my, you know, the territory where I feel safe, I am an integral part of the salvation process. How shall they be saved unless they are sent? Right? We are an integral part. So that's the role that we want to look at with some, uh, with, with some questions uh, today that Jesus asks in John chapter 8. And we're going to be looking, as we look at this, we're going to identify kind of our role of redemption by looking at Jesus' example. We're going to talk about some uncomfortable things today. I just want, want you to be prepared for that. Uh, so Jesus, verse 1, Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple and all the people came to him. He sat down and taught them, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, along with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. So Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So uh, I want to look at this. I want to look at their purpose here uh, because this is going to be important. I want to establish a couple of things before we get into this. Uh, much like last week, we're going to kind of hold off on the questions right away. Uh, we're going to get into establishing some things here. We want to look at their purpose, and it says that their purpose was to test him. And that's kind of an important thing. It's going to establish some things. It, it tells us that our, their motives weren't necessarily genuine. Right? They had an ulterior motive, which was to try to trap Jesus. And what that means is that this woman was collateral damage to them if they thought they could trap Jesus. Now, this is another situation, and I, and I know there's some things that, that maybe are running through your mind as we read this, so I want to uh, <clears throat> establish. This is another one of those stories that we read kind of knowing the outcome, and we know that, that everything turns out nice in the end. And, and so we, I think, kind of read through the beginning of that story with that assumption, knowing that. But I want us to, just for a moment, have you know, a little amnesia and pretend that we've never read this story. And, and imagine you're going through this story... And this is happening in front of you. you. You don't know how it turns out. Because, as I say, we, we know the end. And, and if you don't know the end, or if you, if you do know the end, then, then your reaction is a little bit different than if you don't. We know certain things about 
the Jews uh, and, and their, their ability to uh, have their own capital punishment that was restricted by the Romans. So you might say, well, they weren't really going to do this. This was just a test. Well, I want to call your attention to the fact that that restriction really didn't stop them when they were kind of uh, intent on murdering someone. It didn't stop them from numerous assassination plots on the Apostle Paul. Obviously, it didn't stop them from killing Christ. They had plotted to assassinate Lazarus after he was risen from the dead and was kind of uh, uh, a problem. So, so maybe, maybe they went with stones to try to provoke Jesus and weren't really planning on it. But one of the things that we know is that people in large crowds kind of get moved along by the crowd. And you can get into a situation where things get out of hand really quickly. This was a precarious situation. And a lot of times we approach this situation here in the Bible, as we read it, as something that's not really that serious. Oh, they're just going to say this, and Jesus is just going to you know, tell them this, and he's going to write and stand. All this stuff is going to happen, and then it's going to be okay. And that's kind of what we generically take out of this text. And Jesus has a very difficult scenario put in front of him. We know that he's going to uh, navigate it, but um, we do need to understand also that the Romans, though they had this restriction in place where, okay, you're not supposed to, uh, to kill people on your own. Uh, we kind of do the legal stuff around here. There's a lot of times where the Romans kind of nodded and winked and, okay, that happened. We're just going to pretend it didn't. And, and you know, uh, given the, the prejudices and the the, the social values of, of this day and, and age and, you know, under the Roman Empire, them murdering a woman who has a questionable character issue, probably not much of a person of note, is not going to draw a big reaction in Rome. It's, it's not going to be worth them, you know... You know, trying to put down the hammer on this on the Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of noted for for being a troublemaking spot, and so they tried to you know keep the peace. Okay, that happened. Well, whatever. We'll look the other way. So this woman is in an extremely precarious situation. Now I want to draw your attention to one more thing. As we talk about them testing, and, and maybe you've read this and, and noted it and thought it strange, and maybe not. And if not, then today will be the first day. By the way, we're going to talk about some things. I'm not going to explain them. You either understand what I'm talking about, or you don't understand what I'm talking about. But she was taken in the act. It makes a mention of that twice. She was caught in the very act. Now, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. But sometimes conspiracies happen. I mean, there is a guy by the name of Julius Caesar, right? He was murdered by his friends. There was a plot. Uh, it involved coordination of multiple people, uh, including his best friends. So, so conspiracies do happen. I don't know how a third party catches a person in this act. Unless they are alerted beforehand to the fact that such an act might be happening at a certain place at a certain time. 
Well, that would suggest that somebody has alerted them whom they know. Isn't it interesting who they bring? Frank the Pharisee doesn't, you know, maybe this is their buddy. And he doesn't seem to be here at the current moment. They've brought a woman, right? And we're going to get to that in just a second. They've manufactured, it appears to me, a situation simply for the purpose of trapping Jesus. And they're willing to throw away a woman's life in order to do so. So let's get to some things. First of all, what do we want to know? When we read this text, what do you and I, what, what is our attention drawn to? What's our attention drawn to? Isn't our curious nature drawn to the... Uh, it's always drawn to the things that we don't know. Right? We're, we're not drawn to the things that we do know. Our attention is... Uh, we're like cats. We're, we're always drawn to the, to the mysterious. You know, what's that mysterious red dot running around? You know, we're drawn to the mysterious thing that's very elusive. And, uh, and, and so our, our minds are drawn, I think, to these statements that are written. Now, I'm, I want to say I don't know what's written, but I do have this ability to connect some dots, and I want to connect some dots, and, and I might be correct, uh, connecting them incorrectly uh, this morning, but we're going to try to do that so that we can move past it. I do think they're somewhat important, but they're not the main lessons, but we're going to get there uh, eventually. We have uh, two, two questions, really, because there are two statements or, or two uh, incidents of, of Jesus stooping and writing here in the dirt. Now, we have to first ask a question as we're connecting dots. Would Jesus contradict Moses' law? Because that's the, that's the question posed to him. Uh, Moses uh, commanded us to do this, should we? Hmm? Should I throw this rock? What does Moses say? Now, so, so what they've done is they've positioned... Jesus to where he, he's got to you know, either contradict Moses, or that's what they think they've established. They've got to contradict Mo, he's got to contradict Moses, or he's got to hurt this woman in, in front of everybody, whoever's gathered there. And, uh, and, and that, that's going to hurt his reputation. And they, they think they've got, well, we've got him right where we want him. And so Jesus is not going to contradict Moses. Um, so he's got a tough situation. Well, what did he write? Again, I think it's convenient that, that this was not an organic situation that was presented to him. This seems to be a, a completely manufactured situation. And so Jesus sits down and writes something. And I think what he writes down is something Moses wrote. I think that's what he writes. Oh, you want to bring in Moses into the situation? Let's, let's, let's read some Moses. Leviticus chapter 20.10 says that, uh, in short, that both the man and the woman shall be brought. In other words, this woman's guilty, but she's not the only guilty party. Uh, let's, let's observe Moses quite literally. If you want to do this, uh, you, you need to bring the other party, and then we'll stone them together. How's that? Well, 
if this is uh, if this is a friend of theirs who's kind of alerted them to the fact that, say, at certain point in time, certain event might be happening, and you can get this, and we can set this up and, and test Jesus. All of a sudden, you know, Frank the Pharisee, uh, who alerted them to the fact that something might be happening, he's not going to be so keen on coming. You think he's not going to be coming to this party? Okay. And so here we have this, uh, this, this, this problem starting. Jesus is starting already to, to, to maneuver this situation to his benefit. So he, but it says they continue asking, asking him this. So he's like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to get into some things here. So he writes again. What does he write the second time? Now, again, I, I, these, are, these are just my, this is my surmising here. But, again, I, I, I know certain things, and, and I, I like statistics a little bit, and uh, I know that it is the, the percentage chance of a group of people uh, being offended at something chronologically by age in descending order from oldest to youngest it is, uh, you know, I don't know, what are 15, you know, what are, what are the odds of that happening, you know, if there's 15, 20, 30 people here in this group of, of, of men. That's almost, I mean, that, that no one out of order, you know, like, like there was, they weren't halfway through and then the youngest guy was like, ooh, this is really bad stuff. So, so I know that, that, that this seems to be pretty specific, that, that this gets mentioned and so I can guarantee you, uh, pretty close, I'm like 95% sure that the things here, have these aren't Moses' writings. This isn't something that, that is subject to interpretation here. I think what's happening is that names, dates, and places are being mentioned. Because he says, let whoever hears without sin cast the first stone. Now, this is important. He doesn't say whoever is without this particular sin cast the first stone. He says whoever is perfect, let him cast the first stone. And he says, uh, <clears throat> he's writing the stuff in one by one they leave. I, I think he's like, okay, uh, you. And he starts with the oldest one. And now, oh, that's a little embarrassing. Oh, that, that's awful. You did that? And, and as we're going down, it's just people hoping maybe, maybe he's just going to stop, and he doesn't stop until they're all gone. I think that's what's happening. Again, that's just my conjecture. But now I want to get to the important things. Because that's what we're, our attention is drawn to. We've handled it, but that's not really the most important thing in this text. We're going to look at two questions. He says, first of all, he says, does no one condemn you? Now that he's alone with the woman, he says, does no one condemn you? And I want to point out that Jesus never soft-pedaled sin. There was, in fact, remember what we just, we just said this, that just pointed out, he didn't say, Whoever is without this sin. He said, whoever is without any sin. 
There was, in fact, according to his requirement, one person there who could condemn her. That was him. That's the one person. That person refused to cast the stone. Jesus did not condemn her, but he did identify some problems. As, as, he, as he goes to the very end of it, he says, Go and sin no more. There are requirements. He doesn't deliver condemnation, but he does deliver requirements. And we need to understand that one does not negate the other. So <clears throat> the point of the Bible is to try to take things written then and apply it to now. Uh, right? So, so um, we have a difficulty. Remember, we've, we've said many times, we're reading other people's mail. And you know, there's not a lot of situations like this. Uh, you, no one's going to come in to church today uh, while we're sitting here with a woman caught in adultery and, and they're going to march up here to the stage with stones and, and ask me this. So I've got to try to, I've got to try to take this situation and say, well, yes, this was a situation then and people recorded it so that we could uh, have something valuable to add to our lives, right? We, we've got to try to figure this out. Uh, what does this mean since this exact situation isn't going to repeat itself? What do we learn from it? What do we take from it that, that modifies my behavior? So we're going to attempt to do that. Now, when we do that, uh, there's a lot of times that people don't like it. I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here because uh, we, we say, well, you know, maybe we should do this. And when we try to make things modern, a lot of times people don't like it because we talk about things that happen in our society. And a lot of people don't want to talk about the things that are going around us. Uh, well, that's a hot-button issue. This is a, you know, why, why do you preach this? It could be politics. It can be whatever is going on around you. Uh, and we're like, well, how, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to talk about that. Why don't we want to talk about that? Why don't we want the preacher to talk about that? Well, I'll tell you what. Let me give you an example. If I today preached on race relations. Let's say I was like right, right now, right in the middle of my sermon, I just decided, you know what, this sermon's not really going anywhere. I, I, I really have this thing that just popped into my head, and I want to start talking about race relations in the United States of America. Uh, it would make a lot of people uncomfortable, whether they be, uh, you know, you sitting here or people at home watching this. They, you know, someone's clicked on our website and decided, hey, I'm going to watch, uh, I'm going to watch this sermon here. I'm going to click on the link, and this is what they, they they pop right into the middle of the sermon. They hear me talking about race relations in America, so there's going to be some people rolling their eyes, whatever. But why is there going to be the uncomfortableness? I can tell you why there's going to be uncomfortableness. It's because the people who will be uncomfortable, uncomfortable are people who are worried that I'm going to say something that they disagree with. They have their opinion on a particular thing. And they, as we start talking about this subject, are, are, you know, they might think that I'm going to say something and come to a different conclusion than they have, and they don't want to hear that. Hey, if you're, if you're right in the same boat with me, you're going to be like, yeah, preach it, brother. But, but if you're different from me, oh, no, I, I don't want to hear him say that. Well, that's just a hot-button issue. You need to stay away from it. 
I want you to go back in time and understand that, that Paul talked about Jews and Gentiles a lot. You can't get a hotter first century button topic than Jews and Gentiles. And Paul put it in every book. I mean, Paul, Paul walked around and he's like, is there's a hot button issue, where is it? I, I, I'm going to press that thing. I'm going to pound that hot button, <laughs> you know, until the button don't work. Uh, that was Paul. What is the problem today? Let's get to it. That's the Apostle Paul. And so, so things are written in there for us to, to mention and to draw from, from for our hot-button issues that are happening around us. God doesn't want us to ignore these things. So just hold on to that. While Jesus didn't condemn, he did command things. And you can look at any interaction Jesus had. Any interaction, Jesus never ran away from the necessary conclusion. He never played down a person's situation in order to get their approval. This is the hot button part. I had a person, a, a, a preacher, that I was talking to, and they suggested that a wise course of action in today's society to, to, to kind of foster a relationship where you would have kind of the moral authority or whatever to, to, to develop that relationship, to talk to people about some, some issues in their life, would be, say, say as an example, uh, and this was a specific example that, that we mentioned, that was mentioned in this conversation, if a person, you know, came to you and was asking you and, and they wanted you to use their uh, alternate pronouns, again, you either know what I'm talking about or you don't. You're going to use your alternate pronouns that we should observe that in that conversation until we kind of have the rapport with them to talk about the issues. Now I want you to go back in time with that and kind of reverse, reverse this or, or bring Jesus forward and see based on this interaction with this woman in sin, if you think Jesus would humor somebody with alternate pronouns. I don't think so. Jesus did not humor this woman. Jesus could have said, you know, this woman's had a hard day. I mean, she almost got killed. There was a significant chance she, she could have been killed. They've been harsh on her. Probably, probably, you know, this whole thing was, was set up to trap me, and, and she's bearing the brunt for it. You know, I'm just going to try to get on her good side, so I'm not going to really say anything. Maybe tomorrow or the next week I'm going to come by and, and we can talk about it. But he doesn't do that. He addresses the problem. Go and sin no more. And so he understands, where are those who condemn you? I'm not condemning you. He draws a line between what they do and what he does. They condemn, he requires. 
Jesus never gave up ground that he needed to recover later, ever. He never retreated when he was going to have to regain, ever. I dare you to show me a time. I dare you to show me the time when Jesus humored a person's problem or misconception. So we move on to the other question. He says, where are your accusers? This is not the same question. He asks, does anyone condemn you? Where are your accusers? It's similar, perhaps. The work of redemption is a fine act. It has a narrow range for success. I want to talk about that. Now, this is when I say that I don't mean you know I don't mean a narrow range for success in the sense you know like like the Apollo 13 had a narrow range for success, but uh, but it has it has two sides that you can tend towards because we're human we tend towards things, and uh, depending on which one you choose you can pull success you know away. There's the heavy-handed approach, and there's the soft-handed approach. And, and either one, can, can, if it tends too far from the middle, <clears throat> can, can you know, end up being a disaster for a person's soul. But Jesus masterfully maneuvers this situation. I want to we'll go through this situation just, just real quickly <clears throat> and look at what happens. So they bring the woman to him. <clears throat> now he's just sitting there teaching. And think of, I want you to hold on to that idea. He's just sitting there teaching and they bring a woman to him. They present the entire situation to him. He didn't go to them and, and, okay, let's hash this out. Now, he has an immediate danger, and he neutralizes it. He just, he just pours, you know, it's, it's like bringing some kind of caustic acid, and he just, like, pours limestone into it, and so it's like, you know, and, and it, it goes away. That's the first thing. He, he stoops into that and writes in that sand, and boom, he, he, he has that, you know, the exception clause there with Moses, and he's like, hey, Where's the other one? And then all of a sudden, that dissipates all of their, their momentum. Well, we didn't think about that. Are we going to go get, you know, Frank? Are we going to kill him? How, how far are we going to go in our, you know, maybe it's bluffing, but how far are you willing to go in your bluff? Because if we bring Frank and he says, okay, kill him first. <laughs> they, they, they know the, the gig is up. So he neutralizes the situation. Then he does something masterful. He separates her from the situation, or he separates them from from the people that are a danger. And so when he does this, not he, he doesn't just separate them, but he does so in a way that contrasts the character. Now Understand that she might not have liked these people because they're coming with stones, but they were the religious leaders of the day. And because of 
a lot of the misconceptions because probably people didn't really know the law themselves. They, she probably thought that they had a real good case against her. I, I guess I was kind of doing something bad. And it is kind of a capital punishment. She might not have known all the intricacies of the law. And so, uh, so, so Jesus separates her from the danger, but does so in a way that, that shows himself to be superior to them. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. And, and so he starts to make himself an ally of her, not an enemy. <clears throat> Well, when he does that, he does one more thing as, as these men leave, as he isolates her, not in a negative way, but he removes her from a public spectacle. And he does so, when he does that, he, he gives and puts her in a situation where she can be open about things, where she's going to be willing to receive instruction. So, so I want to bring that, that very first point forward. They brought her to him. And these people who were merely out to use her for their own, you know, really political purposes, ended up bringing a soul to him to save. And Jesus is like, thank you. I'll take that. What, what a master. And these are examples for us. But you can see his procedural priorities here. First of all, he didn't handle private things publicly. Private things are private. And they're personal. And people's sins are, are not to be publicized and handled openly. When you do that, you're just going to send them into a shell. You humiliate them and embarrass them. They're not going to be willing to be open about things. He doesn't handle the soft-hearted with heavy hands. That just crushes a spirit. That's the second priority he has that's obvious here. And thirdly, he doesn't stigmatize. Now, I want to look at something because, and it depends on the version that, of Bible that you read in. Uh, but there's a there's a, a prejudice that you see, and this, we're going to get back into some, some some stuff that you might feel a little awkward about talking about. But he says uh, w w when they bring the woman to him, they says it's important to look at what they say. What do they, they ask? They said, or, or, or how do they present the case? It says, Moses commanded us to do what? To stone such women. Jesus doesn't stigmatize her. See, Jesus handles the wrong, but he doesn't handle it the way they handle it. See, they handle it from the perspective that she is a such woman. They identify her on the basis of a person, on an identity. Those people. But Jesus keeps it on her behavior. What you've done. Go and sin no more. 
I, I want to mention this, and, and we, we, every time we sing these songs, we need to, we need to identify it. It was probably well-meaning, and a person was trying to be humble when they wrote this song that we sang this morning. But what we sang about our own worthlessness. If we want to sing about our unworthiness, I'm okay with that. But I'm not okay with singing about my worthlessness. Jesus doesn't stigmatize the person... He identifies the behavior. They were willing to talk to her. She was a throwaway, uh, I don't know if that's a word, a throwawayable person <laughs> because of who they looked at her as. Such women. So let's bring this forward 2,000 years. Because as I said, no one's going to march in here with this particular situation and give it to us. So let, let's, let's see what might happen inside these four walls. If a woman, young woman, teenage girl, an unwed mother were to come in and sit down, would we look at her as a such woman? Would we speak about her as a such woman? If a, I want you to think about the, a cause that we all talk about. And I, I'm not saying that we are incorrect on it. I'm just saying I want to talk about how we talk about things. If someone came in and, and heard the way we talk about the topic of abortion, I know abortion, there he goes again. Can we stay away from the hot button issue? No. No. It, it's something real and it's our society. But if someone heard the way I talk about it, how would they respond? The reason I say that is I can probably guarantee you there's a 98% chance that either right now or in our recent past, and I don't know, again, I, I'm saying probably, I don't know this to be true. There has been someone sitting here that, or is sitting here, that's had an abortion. And we sit here and we talk about murder and we talk about... And those things might all be true, factually speaking. But when we speak of it, how we speak of it, how will that person sitting there, who cannot go back in time and undo what they've done, who is very sorry, who has suffered a ton of emotional distress from their own decision, how will they respond to the way we talk about it? Will they look at me as the Pharisee in this situation, or will they look at me as Christ? Huh? That's an application we might not have had. Because we look at the Pharisees are the obvious bad guys in this situation. Will they look at me as having contempt or compassion based on the way I speak about this issue? Do I stigmatize or do I address the issue? I can't not talk about it. 
It's an issue of something that happens in our society. But how I talk about it is going to affect how likely someone is willing to open up to me. Someone's sitting here right now. Someone walks in off the street. I don't know. And kind of in a desperate situation, whatever, or has considered it, will I present myself and this topic in a way that makes them want to open up and be willing to hear what I have to say about it? Or will they clam up about it and feel like they could never, ever, ever share that part of themselves? That's important. And so, as we conclude, I want you to resist the urge. What do you mean? Our urges and our tendencies come from our personality traits, our character traits, and, and, and those are given to us by God. They're, they're not really good or bad. We just use them the way that, that we have them, and sometimes we use them good ways and sometimes bad ways. But you have tendencies. You might be a person that, that doesn't like confrontation. That's, that's good. That's good to have peacemaker-type people. We need peacemaker people. Not everyone is an Apostle Paul who's like, where's the hot button and I'm going to jam on it. right? Those people are okay. But in time, we all need to override our tendencies. Right? There are times where your tendencies are not the right tendency and we need to override them. This might not be the best time to fill in the blank. And so you come with two urges. You might be, as I say, the person who wants to avoid confrontation. And that might lead you in a particular situation to try to duck the question. Or to try to soft pedal to try to placate a person where they're at. And I'm telling you, if you do that, if you give up that ground, you will never be able to come back to it because, what, two months down the road, three months down the road, a year down the road, you're going to say, okay, I'm going to get up the urge, and I'm going to, I got the nerve, and I'm going to tell them what I need to tell them. And they're going to say, what? For a year, we've had a relationship based on the premise that I thought I was okay with you? the way I am, and you're going to tell me all of a sudden it's not okay? You've given up ground that you can't recover. So resist the urge. Resist that tendency that, that's in you. On the other hand, you might have the urge to condemn. Well, condemning is never good. Okay, let me rephrase that. Some people are analytical people. I am one of those people. I like to put things in boxes, and I like to label them, and I like to know where they're at, and I like to know what's inside of them. And, and this is the, this box, and you belong in this box, because you are this, 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 and I know your character, and I, I, I can... Right? I like to identify all the wrongs, and who did them, and when, and how. That's just my nature. 
And that tends towards condemnation and judgment. It's not wrong. There's a point in time where it's good for us to pull out the box and we sit down in a, a, a small group or one-on-one and we say, okay, this is the times, this is the ways, this is the places, this is, you know, this is how we got to where we're at. We need to identify it in a non-condemning way. But we need people who put things in those kind of boxes and identify those things. That's how we work through issues. But I need to understand when it's time to override that urge and simply be compassionate without soft pedaling. Go and sin no more. That's it. Uh, we, can, we can talk about it without condemning. And so today, as you leave, I want you to recall that illustration. As we talk about my role in redemption, we understand God saves. We understand that God is the the man on this boat, this, this great ship of grace, trying to get people who are overboard in, in whatever awful perilous conditions they're in, in the world around us. And so my concluding thought for you today is simply be the rope. Do your job. You're not the man on the boat. You're not the boat. But just be the rope.